Life is worth the living. Amen? Just because. Just because. Did you ever catch that? Not because of Christ and other things in my life that are right and I like, but life is worth the living just because He lives. Hope you believe that today. Hope you profess that today. Well, good morning, beloved. Um, Let's go right to it. Over the past several weeks, uh, Brother Brian has been leading us through a series entitled Core Values. Now, if you've been unable to hear every sermon in that series so far, I urge you to go back and listen to them. They are, and I do not use this term lightly, essential to understanding who we are becoming as a faith family at FBCJ. Go back and listen to those. Catch up if you've missed them. Today, we're going to continue in this series looking at the core value of determined discipleship. Determined discipleship. Now, if you would listen to the description of this core value, and in the near future, you're going to be getting a list of these that we have gone through in the past as well as a few more. Determined discipleship says this, Discipleship is a vital part of the church. Because He is Lord of our lives, we believe all members should be growing into a mature relationship with Jesus. Christianity is not merely a religion, but a worldview. Therefore, we are to think and act biblically concerning every aspect of our lives. We are in this world, but we are not of it. Now, there's certainly a lot in that statement, and we're not going to spend this morning dissecting it line by line. We are actually seeking to do that on Wednesday evenings, and so I would encourage you to be a part of that and join us in that discussion. However, every part of that statement is pulled directly from the Scriptures. And I believe our text this morning serves us well to discover just exactly what determined discipleship is by taking a look at what the Bible says. And no, beloved, not just what the Bible says, but what Jesus Himself says are true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is a true disciple? Are you a true disciple? If you come to the point today in this sermon that you hear me saying that and you go, why does he keep saying that? It's getting on my nerves. You need to examine your life. Are you a true disciple? Our passage for today is going to bring us face to face with the answer to that question. This is not a typical Trey sermon. Take your Bible that I pray with you, brought with you, and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke chapter 9. We're looking at just a few verses this morning. They are specific, they are to the point, and they are the truth. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 36, excuse me, 23 through 26. And he, speaking of Jesus, he said to all, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today on this Lord's Day, this gathering of the faith family to meet with you, to draw near with you. And we can do so because you have pulled back the veil that has hindered us from being with you. And you have done that through the giving of your son, Jesus Christ, the tearing of your own flesh. To become our eternal intercessor and high priest that we may, as we gather in this place today, meet with you. And we pray that we have honored you thus far and that we will continue to do so. Lord, we are nothing. We come before you with nothing. Knowing that it is all of the grace of God and of your salvation that we find ourselves here today. So Lord, we ask that the power of your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would visit us here in this place. That he would speak to us That as Jesus himself says at the end, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, will you give us ears to hear today? And when we leave here, may we be changed. Of not just an understanding of who you are, but of also what you require. Speak today, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Allow me to begin this morning in an unusual fashion with a story. And the story goes exactly where we are headed today. It's told by another pastor, but it's a story about a church member named Rob. No, not Rob Witten. But a church member named Rob. Listen to his story. Rob had never been much for church, but he had nothing against it. He wasn't an atheist or anything of that nature. He simply had never much seen good in it. Then his friend Sean invited Rob to go to a Christian meeting with him, and Rob was feeling down, so he thought, maybe this will help. So Rob went to the meeting with Sean, and afterward they talked for a long time. Eventually it just got to Rob. He didn't break down and cry or anything. He just opened up and was more honest than he usually was, even with himself. And that's when he did it. In the span of five minutes, Sean had told him about the wonderful life he could have had as a, have as a Christian and the free gift he could have right now of forgiveness from God for everything he had ever done wrong and eternal life with God in heaven when he died. Seemed like the best thing Rob had offered, been offered in a long time. So when Rob asked how he could sign up, Sean handed him a little booklet and pointed to a paragraph in bold letters printed on the back cover. It was a prayer. Repeat after me 
Sean said, and Rob did. And that was that. Sean told him excitedly that he had become a Christian because God promised that if anyone confessed his sins, God would forgive him. Now, Rob knew that he had done bad things, so he prayed. And there it was. It was over. It was done with. The toughest decision he would ever have to make. At the age of 17, Rob was saved. In the years that followed, Rob lived a pretty upstanding life. By the time Rob was 40, some people even thought of him as a pillar of the church. He ended up getting involved in a church where the preaching was usually exciting. The sermons were short, to the point, filled with good stories and memorable anecdotes and moving illustrations. Now, Rob would have to confess, if anyone had cornered him, he didn't really know his Bible very well. Though he had taught Sunday school for several years, he couldn't really tell you where most of the books in the Bible were, or why the Exodus was important, or what the book of Revelation was about. Rob had his own thoughts about God and shared these with people, but he didn't really get them from the Bible. After all, the gospel was pretty straightforward. It was a pretty straightforward offer from God to forgive our sins if he would just own up to them. He knew that Jesus and the cross were important. He wasn't sure exactly how, but he knew they were. If the truth were known, Rob thought of conversion kind of like the decision to buy a new car or some other momentous decision in your life. It was big, a little scary, but it was just something you had to do. He would go through periods of more involvement and periods of less involvement. Sometimes he would be there every Sunday for a year. And then other times he wouldn't be there for a month, two months, or three months. He was able to pick and choose the things he wanted to get involved with. And honestly, he kind of liked it that way. And then there was the problem a few years back when his daughter had been taught some things in church and almost ended up becoming a foreign missionary. So he had to forbid her to go to youth group and even church for a while. And he didn't even go himself for the better part of a year. Now, he wasn't too worried about it, though, because he knew that he believed once saved, always saved. And he knew that he had been saved because he remembered praying that prayer with Sean. So he didn't really have anything to worry about. Beloved, would it surprise you if I told you that Rob really wasn't growing as a Christian? And, and more than that, that it didn't really bother him that he wasn't growing as a Christian? Do you know a Rob? Or perhaps maybe you identify with Rob. Beloved, is this a biblical picture of what Christianity is supposed to be? What about the church, though? Should the church be content with this type of Christianity? I mean, maybe shouldn't we? By all accounts, most would call Rob a committed church member. Shouldn't we just take what we can get? One pastor said this. He said, a healthy church is characterized by a serious concern for spiritual growth on the part of its members. In a healthy church, people want to get better at following Jesus Christ. Do you think Rob wants to get better at following Christ? Beloved, do you desire to get better at following Christ? Do you desire to become more like Christ? I fear today... Many sitting in our pews, many sitting in their homes, many professing believers are like Rob. 
proclaiming loudly, once saved, always saved, and having no idea what it means to be born again. No idea what it means to have saving faith, to be supernaturally changed by the Holy Spirit. Are you a true disciple today? What is a true disciple? Well, in our text that we just read, Jesus instructed that true disciples deny themselves and willfully obey Him as Lord. Listen to that one more time. Jesus instructed that true disciples denied themselves and willfully obeyed Him as Lord. Beloved, that is a true disciple. True disciples deny themselves and willfully obey the Lord Jesus Christ. It was true and right for them in Jesus' day, and it is true and right for us now. Now, our text is unique. Because this is one of the few places where Jesus goes on to specifically explain what he means. There's no parable hiding behind the bushes. There's no scene where the disciples run up later and go, Jesus, what were you talking about there? Oddly enough, two other, at least two other occasions in the scriptures, Jesus defines what a true disciple is. And then he goes on to clearly explain. He even provides examples of what he means. We'll come to that in just a moment. But for now, I just got two points and they're actually straight from the text. What is a true disciple? Two points. A true disciple is not ashamed of Jesus Christ. That's point number one. Point number two. A true disciple is not ashamed of the words of Christ. That's it. So what does this look like? A true disciple is not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in the text, beloved, in verse 33. He says to all. Now here in this particular passage, he is speaking primarily to the disciples, but the indication is that there is somewhat of a crowd there. If you look a little later down the road in Luke chapter 14, he's going to be speaking again. And this time he's going to be in a crowd of hundreds, if not thousands of people. And this is going to be the same thing that he's going to say to them. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, don't read past the if anyone. The if anyone is the qualifier. It's not to say that he's talking about everybody who has ever been on the creation of the world. What he is saying here is here are the standards. Here is the qualification and it applies to anyone. It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter your previous faith family. It doesn't matter what you've done in the church. It doesn't matter what you're not doing in the church. If you're the worst sinner in the world or if you're the greatest saint in the world. He says, if anyone, anyone would come after me, here it comes. It's your basic if-then statement. If you want to come after Christ then here's what it is. This is who you have to be. The conditions apply to all. It is not up for debate. And this is it. He says, if you want to come after me, you deny yourself. 
You deny yourself. In other words, you die to yourself. Now, beloved, this is not simply, I don't get to do some stuff. Some of you immediately went there. Oh, now he's going to tell me what I don't need to do as a Christian. He's going to give me all the don'ts. No. That is not what this text means. This is not just that you don't get to do some stuff. No, in fact, that is a man-centered approach that fails to recognize your own current condition and why you are in need of a Savior in the first place. He's saying that you need to deny yourself because it is yourself that is the problem. Hello. Amen, lights. It is yourself, it is myself, it is ourselves that is the problem. We have sinned. We have sinned against a holy God. We have disobeyed His transgressions. We have failed against His law. We have failed the requirement. We have missed the mark. Whatever term you want to use, is we stand before a holy God... And we have failed. We have sinned against Him. And as a result, we are unable to understand spiritual things. We are born with a sin nature. We are born with a propensity to sin. It is nothing within us but a sinful heart that longs to go against everything that is God. The Scriptures themselves says that there is no one who seeks after God. There is no one who fears God. We have sinned. And Jesus says, if you are going to come after me, you must deny yourself. You must die to yourself. You must die to your ways. You must die to your thoughts. Every part of your identity must die if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is where repentance and faith comes in. This is where we see the evidence of the new birth is that when Christ enters into our heart and He changes us from the inside out, we call out in repentance and faith, confessing our sin to Him. But it's not just a confession. It's a turning from sin and self. And it's a turning to Christ and His way. And we say then that Jesus becomes our Savior and our, you finish it, Lord. Well, what does that word mean? You've heard me say this before, that, that word means boss. That, words mean that, that, that word means that He is in charge. That word means that He is the Master. It is now what He says that and I'm no longer on my own. I'm no longer leading myself. It's no longer my way, but it is Christ and His way. It's a turning, a dying from yourself and a turning to Christ. That is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There is no such being as a Christian who does not seek to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that you are perfect. What I'm saying is when you sin or when you are called upon your sin, that the Spirit of God wells within you with conviction of your heart and mind, and you don't live in your sin. You are not comfortable in your sin if you are His disciple because you have died to yourself. And understand, beloved, 
This is not just about you. But when you die to self, it is also dying to everything that affects you. Because you need to understand this context. We live in an individual world. It's me, myself, and I. And don't really mess with me. This was not the day, case in Jesus' day. This text is not understood in an individual context. Rather, to deny oneself was to set aside the relationships, the extended family of origin and inner circle of friends by which one made up their identity. It is comprehensive. It affects every aspect of your life. Again, Jesus explains this. You don't have to turn there. Just make a note of it in Matthew chapter 10. Listen to what he says in verse 35. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then he goes into the text that we just said. Did you catch what he said? He said, if you love anything more than me, you cannot be my disciple. A little while later in Luke 14, he's going to use the word hate. And and he defines it in Matthew 14, what he means by that word hate. And it means a matter of of love less. If you love anything more than me. Beloved, if you love your children more than you love Christ. If you love your spouse more than you love Christ. If you love your parents more than you love Christ. If you love your friends more than you love Christ. If you love your job more than you love Christ. If you love your church more than you love Christ. You cannot be His disciple. This is what denying yourself means. When you truly deny yourself, it's going to begin to affect you and those around you. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children. It is a cognizant admission that your way is sinful and that your way is dead wrong. It is an admission to the proverb that says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. My way is wrong. Your way is wrong. Our way is wrong. There is only one way. He says to deny yourself. But he also says something else. He joins it with. It's a, it's a both hand. He's not saying the same exact thing, but it's like repentance and faith. They go together. If you got one, you got the other. So he says, deny yourself. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my true disciple, you are to deny yourself and take up your cross. Take up your cross. You know, beloved... Next to, and Brother Brian has preached on this many times, he's talked about this many times. Next to Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. I think that this is probably one of the most misunderstood passages of our day. Take up your cross. Well, you know, this is my life, it's just my cross to bear. Take up your cross. 
What are we saying? Well, you've got to go back in the context of what Jesus is saying, of what the disciples understood him to say when he said it. You need to understand the background of the cross in the Roman world. It was an instrument of death. It was an instrument of brutal punishment that signified the person who was carrying it was one of the most heinous criminals out there. If you were convicted and you were sentenced to crucifixion, at your trial, a crossbeam would have been strapped to your back. And then you would have to, just as Jesus did, along with what, what they call the Via Dolorosa, just as Jesus did, you would have walked with this cross all the way up to your death where they would have slammed you down on that pole with that cross on your back to crucify you till you breathe your last. From site of sentencing to place of crucifixion. Every step you took, by the way, was in broad daylight and in the witness of all. And what you were doing is you were walking with your sin on your back. You were walking with your crime on your back in full admission that what you had done was worthy of death. So when Jesus said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross, this is exactly, immediately what the disciples would have pictured. What is he saying? Jesus is saying that it is as though you have been sentenced to death. You want to be his disciple? And everything about you has got to die. Everything about you has got to be displayed out to the road of humiliation. He says, you must identify with me in my suffering. You know why we identify with him in his suffering, beloved? Because we did not have to experience our suffering. He took the beating for our sin. He who was innocent in every way and perfect in every thought, act, and deed. He had the cross strapped to His back, beaten to such a point that He couldn't even physically carry it any longer. He had the nails in His wrist and in His feet. He was hung for our sins and our transgressions. He was killed so that we would not have to be. And he says, I have bought you. I have bought you with my own blood. I have paid your sin debt. And now you are mine. And if you are mine, then I am your master. And you are to identify with me just as I did. And he calls us to sacrificial suffering. Even if it, not, even if it means not being put to death. But to identify with him to the point of death on account of him. What am I getting at? What is it to take up your cross? Beloved, this is a willful 
act. No one forced Christ to the cross. Taking up your cross is a willful act. And when you take this willful act of sacrifice, it is going to cause friction with every aspect of your life at one time or the other. You need to understand that today and hear that today because that is what is taking up your cross means. We've twisted this. We've perverted this to make it about us. This is just my cross to bear. I had a bad day at work. It was just a bad day. Nothing went my way. But it's okay. That's my cross to bear. Taking up my cross and following Jesus. I got a a broken arm. Broken limb. I, I, I'm incapacitated for a little while. That's, that's, that's my cross to bear. I got up this morning to go and I had a flat tire and I had to spend all morning getting dirty and changing that tire. But you know what? That just said that's my cross to bear. <laughs> no, beloved. No. You see what we have done? We took an instrument of death that signified one of the most heinous deaths imaginable. We washed it off. We covered it in gold. We polished it and we put it around our neck. Why? Because we do not see the gravity. We do not see the gruesomeness of our sin as an affront to a holy God whose cup of wrath is sitting tilted with it at the rim, ready to be poured out in an unimaginable fury. Hear me today, beloved. Your cross is not a providential circumstance or hindrance to your life, but it is a willful action towards obedience in spite of circumstances which will most likely cause friction or maybe, maybe even persecution. Taking up your cross. Taking up your cross is not... Simply a wayward child. Hear me. Taking up your cross is not a spouse who will not seek to be godly. Taking up your cross is not sympathizing with a church member's sin. Taking up your cross is not your sickness. You say, what is it then, Brother Trey? Hear me today. Taking up your cross is not a wayward child, but it is intentionally setting out to call them to repentance and faith in whatever discipline that may entail. Taking up your cross is not simply living with an unbelieving spouse or an unrepentant spouse, but if they are a believer, it is calling them to repentance. Calling them to faith. And if they're not a believer, it's seeking to win them over with your conduct by demonstrating your faith to them. Taking up your cross is not sympathizing with the church member's sin, but it is calling them to repentance and going down the instructions given to us in Matthew 18 of how to call somebody to repentance of their sin. Taking up your cross is 
I told you it affects every aspect of life. It's not simply allowing the government to sit there and indoctrinate your children. But taking an active role in what it is that they are learning and the worldview that they are developing and turning it in a biblical way. Taking up your cross is not just your sickness. But rather through that sickness, seeking to glorify God in all that you say, in all that you do, and be a bold witness for His testimony. Taking up your cross is not your fear, but regardless of the consequences, seeking to obey the Lord's commands. Taking up your cross is not simply saying no to the world. It is not simply letting go and letting God. That is an unbiblical view, beloved. Taking up your cross is not just saying no to the world. It is saying yes to Christ. It is a willful, purposeful, sacrificial action. An active faith that is lived out. Why? Because He has bought us. He has plucked us from the depths of sin and hell and death. Again, Jesus is saying, it is though you have been sentenced to death, you cannot be born again unless you die to yourself. If you're going to be born again, you must die. When we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross daily, by the way, Then, Jesus says, you can follow me. If you proclaim saving faith, you are a disciple. Jesus says, go into all the world, baptizing them, making disciples. If you proclaim to be saved by the blood of Christ, you are a disciple, beloved. As J.M. Boyce says, discipleship is not a supposed second step in Christianity as if one first becomes a believer in Jesus and then if he chooses a disciple. No, from the beginning, discipleship is involved in what it means to be a Christian. Unbeliever or professing believer or church member, did you catch that? This is what salvation entails. That you are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That you are His slave. That He is your Master. Christ saves you from your sin. From the wrath of God. Because He has purchased your life. You are His. And there's no way around that word slave, by the way. I've tried. You are His. You're bought by the blood of Christ. He is your master. You say, I don't like that. Then Christ says, you have no part of me. It is a narrow gate, beloved. It is narrow. Sound harsh? Well, think with me for just a moment about the context surrounding the passage itself. Here's what's going on. You can go back and check Matthew chapter 16. Peter has just proclaimed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus Himself says, Man did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
He makes this great proclamation. Jesus agrees to it. He affirms it. He says, yes, I am the Lord. I am the Son of God. I am the King. Peter's going, we're about to take over Israel. We're about to defeat Rome. Because he's thinking earthly. The very next words out of Jesus' mouth. Don't tell anybody. What? Don't tell anybody. And then he begins to say this. What you need to know is the Son of Man is about to go in Jerusalem and He's going to be handed over to the scribes and Pharisees and they're going to kill Him. They're going to bury Him and He's going to rise again. And it's at this that Peter cannot take any more. And, and Peter goes up to him and he says, Jesus, we need to talk. Think of that for just a moment. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. You just pronounced to the world that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He is God. And then Jesus says something you're not ready for, and you bring Jesus over and you go, Jesus, we need to talk about this for just a minute. I don't don't think you mean what you just said. What is Jesus' response? He says, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. He doesn't say, sorry, Peter, you just don't really understand it. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not focused on God, but on man. You're wanting man's way and not God's way. And then he goes into our text. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Beloved, your heart must be changed. In order to be born again, you must die to your life. In order to save your life, you must lose it. You must lose all rights to it. It is not yours. Do not be ashamed of Christ. For He will have no part of you. Are you a true disciple? Then you are not ashamed of Christ. Second thing, very quickly. Second mark of a true disciple is that he is not ashamed of the words of Christ. This brings us into the points that we need to think biblically and we need to act biblically. We need to think biblically and we need to act biblically. Beloved, I need you to understand today that obedience is active. It is not passive. It is something that we willfully choose to do for the kingdom of God. We are to think and act biblically concerning every aspect of our life. Here is where the rubber meets the road. Here is where we deny ourselves and take up our cross. This is exactly what Jesus is telling us to do. So we think biblically. What does that look like? Let me just go through the, the, the core values that you've covered so far in terms of our application. Biblical fidelity, that's one of our core values. What does that mean? That we are to think, that we are to understand that the Bible is my sole authority in all matters of faith and practice. That it is sufficient. It is it. It is my authority. I'll show you how that comes into play in just a moment. God-honoring worship. We are to think and have the conviction that regular corporate worship must be a priority for myself 
and my family. We are to think of expositional preaching, to understand that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, that the Word must be explained, that the text must be expounded with the point of the text being the point of the sermon. And we are to think, to think biblically and be family-focused, to seek to raise our children, our grandchildren, our spiritual children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But again, we don't just think biblically. We are to act biblically. This is what Christ is getting at when He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We act biblically. Yes, right thinking should lead to right action, but that's just it. It takes action. It does us no good to study the Word apart from the application from it. In fact, James tells us to be hearers of the word and not doers is deceiving yourself. Think about this just for a moment. He's not here today, but you know, Joe Carpenter is an avid fisherman. What if I went to him every day and I just said, hey, Joe, tell me about fishing. Tell me about fishing. Teach me about fishing. Now, he never took me fishing, but he just taught me about fishing. Everything I need to know. And then he'd see me in a week. Did you go fishing, Trey? No, I didn't go fishing. Did you go fishing, Trey? No, but I want to learn some more. I want to learn some more about fishing. So he teaches me a little bit more. Did you go fishing this week? No, no, I didn't go fishing. And then a few weeks later, he hears me having a conversation with one, somebody else talking about how great of a fisherman I am. What do you think Joe's response is going to be to that? It won't be good. Beloved, In the same manner, if you never begin to look or act like Jesus in your life, do you think His response, what do you think His response will be when you stand before Him calling yourself a Christian? So, what does that look like? Again, here's core values with our application biblical fidelity. What does that mean? What is the application of thinking biblically, of thinking about biblical fidelity, that the scriptures are our authority? It means that when faced with decisions of gender, marriage, divorce, abortion, whatever, who is to be a pastor, that we do not compromise. That is acting biblically. What about God honoring worship? It is that you prioritize and you participate in the regular corporate worship. That you seek to prepare yourself on Saturday evening. That you look forward to meeting with the faith family so that you can stir up love and good deeds and seek to operate in each one's spiritual gift. And most of all, that we can meet together with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and worship Him together. I love what Craig James says. He says the Christian has no problem worshiping Jesus. What about family focused? It's instead of coming home from work, falling in a recliner, and pretending that your family and the noises around you don't exist, you deny yourself and you take up your cross. 
and you seek to train up your children in the fear and admonition of the world, you wor- fear and admonition of the Lord, you lead in family worship, or you encourage your husband to do so. You take up the cross. It is a willful act, and it will cause friction, beloved. Hear me with every aspect of your life, and that being family, that being friends, that being co-workers, whatever the case. Hear me. Becoming more like Christ is not an option for someone with saving faith. Paul has said in Romans that God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. In Ephesians, He has saved you and prepared you for good works. In Philippians, He says, He who began the work is faithful to complete it. Hear me today, beloved, to sit back and say that I am just the way I am. That's just the way that God made me. And I don't need to worry about changing that I've been saved and once saved, always saved. And it doesn't really matter how I'm changing is to call Christ a liar. Because you are saying the promises that he has made about you are not true. And you are playing with fire, beloved. He has called us to be His disciples. If we are His disciples, we will deny ourselves and take up our cross. I would challenge you to go today to Luke chapter 14 sometime today and read where He encourages the crowd To count the cost. To count the cost. To think about what it's going to cost you to be a disciple of Christ. He gives two illustrations there that are very clear. But at the end of the day, this is what he's saying. Count the cost. What will it cost you? Everything. Everything. I can't tell you what you might lose or for how long. But what I can tell you is that if that your identity must be in Christ alone or you have not died to self. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you lose it all today. If you lose it all, family, friends, job, if it all goes away, bank account, health, if it all goes away, is Christ enough? Is it really just because He lives? Are you a true disciple? Let's stand together.